Thank you, Aaron. It's good to be here. I'm usually here, but I'm just usually over there. So as I've said before, if I don't know what to do with my hands and I just start doing this, you'll know what's going on. I'm used to having a guitar in my hands. (laughs) It's good to gather together as the people of God. It's good to be here in this place with you at the end of our week or maybe the beginning of your week. And we are going to carry on where Aaron has been in the Gospel of John. So while we're opening up, would you turn to John chapter 9 in your Bibles, please? On the back of your bulletin, there's a couple of points that you can follow along with, kind of help you track where I'm going with the sermon. Hopefully that's a help to you. So we're going to break up this text, which is 41 verses. We're going to look at it in three different sections. And then when we're done, we'll put it all together and make application from that. So let's dive right in. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bibles open, let's look at John 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The first point that I want to draw our attention to is that in our circumstances, we should look for purpose, not always cause. We should look for purpose, not just cause. So let's make a couple notes just in these few verses. First of all, Jesus passed by. This may not seem like a big detail to you, but you remember in John 4, in the account of the woman at the well, similar language is used by the gospel writer when he says Jesus had to pass by way of Samaria. You remember that? You remember Aaron talking about that? How there was a sovereign intentionality to what Jesus was doing. In that case, he didn't have to pass through Samaria, but he did because he had an appointment with the woman. In this case, he didn't have to go this way, He didn't have to get out of the temple this way, but he did. He has sovereign and good intentions in everything that he does. Jesus has been teaching the crowds. Remember in John 6, 7, and 8, he's teaching the crowds. He's talking about himself. He's been telling them who he is. And now he turns his attention to his disciples. This section is him illustrating something to his disciples. This is not haphazard. Jesus does this. And John includes this, I believe, in the narrative so that we have a tangible example of what needs to happen in our heart if we're really to see with the eyes of our heart. The indictment Jesus had for the religious leaders of his day was seeing they didn't see and hearing they didn't hear. So there's a way that we can look at Jesus and not really see him. And there's a way that we can hear what he says but not really hear what he says. So that's what we want to do today. We want to find out what has to happen in our heart, in my heart, before I can really understand what Jesus says. And I think this is a really tangible example of that in this healing of the blind man. So as he passes by, Jesus sees a man that's blind from birth. And seeing as everything Jesus does is an illustration of a spiritual reality. You understand that, right? The, the, the emphasis, the, the main point of Jesus' ministry was never the earthly thing. It was never the physical feeding of the people. It was never the physical healing. Those things were illustrating a bigger point, a spiritual point. Same thing is happening right here. He sees this man who's blind from birth. And this, again, may not seem like a big detail, but I think the order is really important. Because what does it tell us? Jesus saw the man. 
The man didn't see Jesus first. That seems obvious since he was blind, but think about that. There was nothing that this man did to pursue Christ. He didn't run after him. He didn't seek him out. The grace that Jesus shows to this man was initiated by Christ, not by the man. That's a really important detail because as we go on in this text and we talk about what has to happen in our heart to truly see Christ, we're going to see that this is the work of Christ, not our work that opens our eyes in this way. So the only thing that this beggar had to offer Jesus was a need. Isn't that something? When you think about this, the only thing that this poor, blind beggar had to offer Christ was a need. And I think it's important that we point out at this point, that is exactly the kind of person Christ came for. Jesus said, the people who are well don't need a doctor, it's the sick who need a doctor. And he passes by this man very intentionally. And he looks at him. The man doesn't seek him out. Jesus seeks him out. And he sees the need. And he helps him. And, and we are that person. Later in the message, I'm going to ask you to identify yourself as one of the people in this account. And we are this blind beggar. Apart from Christ, we sit upon the road of life with no hope, no drive, no initiative to do anything right. But we need the work of Christ. We need Christ to look upon us and do a healing work in us. So I think this is interesting as we keep reading the text. His disciples ask him in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is where my point came from for this initial section. We should look for purpose, not cause. The disciples are much like us, and they immediately look for what, what caused this? What was the reason? We always want to know. If something happened, well, what caused it? What was, what was the matter? Are you being punished for something? You know, things happen in our life, and we wonder, well, why is this happening to me? They go immediately for the cause. But Jesus does an amazing thing. He, he goes beyond their limited perspective, and he goes right for purpose. It's not that cause isn't important, but it's that purpose is ultimate. They see someone who is sick, handicapped, disabled, and right away, instead of showing compassion or asking how they could help, the disciples go right for the cause. What happened? Who sinned? And now before we get too hard on them for saying that, because we think that's kind of silly, right? If we were to say, well, I have the flu and... and, uh, Someone at church says, oh, what, what sin did you commit that you have the flu? <laughs> it's kind of a foreign way for us to think. But in the context here, that was actually a very common way of thinking. In fact, back in the book of Ezekiel, which I'm sure you all have almost memorized, there is an account where God exhorts Ezekiel and says, stop saying that. Stop saying that the father sinned and the kids are paying for it. This is in Ezekiel chapter 18. I'm just going to read this so we get a little bit of context. Ezekiel 18, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What that means is the parents messed up and the kids are paying for it. That's what this proverb was being spoken. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used in the land of Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the Father as well as the souls of the Son are mine. The soul whose sins shall die. Later in verse 20, The Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father for the iniquity of the Son. What God is telling Ezekiel to tell the people is that it doesn't work like that. 
if the father messes up, the son doesn't pay for it. Iniquity is on the person. So we see this thought process has crept back into the disciples' thinking. They see a problem, they see an illness, and they say right away, well, somebody must have sinned for this to happen. And this is how it was in Ezekiel's day, and yet in John 9 we see it again, where they have this assumption that if you're sick, if you're deformed, if you're blind in this case, that you must have sinned or somebody must have sinned for this to happen. Now, in a general sense, we know from what Scripture teaches that death entered the world because sin entered the world, right? You read Romans 5 and you see that through Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so there is a sense in which all sickness is tied to sin. If there had not been sin in the world, death would not have come into the world. This is the hope that believers have for a new heavens and a new earth, is the reversal of this curse that has come upon the world. Right? When we talk about new heavens and new earth, we think no more sickness, no more crying, no more death. Those things are former, the Bible says, and they're going to pass away. But for now we can say that the disciples, in a sense, were right. Someone did sin to cause this. They just had the wrong guy. It was Adam. Adam sinned, and because of Adam's sin, all of creation was plunged into death. So there's a little bit of wrong thinking going on in the disciples' part, but I think Jesus pushes past this discussion about cause and moves directly to purpose. Look what he says in chapter 9 here, verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents stop right there does he mean that they were without sin no jesus is not saying these were two sinless people what he's saying is that this sickness was not the direct cause of a specific sin but that the works of god might be displayed in him and in this case the works of god was healing this man right that Jesus might be put on display, that his power might be put on display to illustrate to his disciples what he'd been telling the people all along, that he really was who he said he was. And I think if we are under the impression, I'm going to say we because I, I think the same way sometimes, if we are under the impression that all sickness and disability are the work of Satan or circumstance or something random that's wrong thinking god is the one who makes someone blind god is the one who makes someone crippled god is the one who makes me diabetic at age one why because he has good purpose in it it's not just the cause who knows what the cause is but the purpose of god is so that he might be displayed as glorious so that he might be relied upon instead of on your flesh. That's the purpose. And I think this part of John is included so that we know that God has good design in everything. In everything. Not just the easy things, but the hard things too. And I'm not making this up, that God has something to do with this. Turn back to Exodus chapter 4 with me. Exodus chapter 4 Moses is complaining to God as he's going to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he says, I'm not the right guy for this. I can't even talk right. He had a speech impediment. There was something up with Moses' talk. And he goes to God and he says, I don't think I'm the right guy for this. How does God respond? Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent either in 
the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Go therefore, and I will be with your mouth and will teach you what you shall speak. God is the one who does these things. Why? Not for punishment, for purpose. And that's what he wants us to see here. So why is, why is it important? We, we always need to ask the why question. Why do I spend 10 minutes at the outset talking about disability and God's hand in it? Let me tell you about Lisa Gunger. Lisa and Michael Gunger are around my age. They live on the East Coast in the United States here, and they were worship leaders at a big church out there, married young, had everything going for them, touring around, writing music, doing churchy things. They go to Europe. Mistake number one. Just kidding. They go to Europe, and they go through the Holocaust Museum. And Lisa Gunger comes out of the Holocaust Museum and says, there's no way that God had anything to do with this. There's no way that a good God allows this to happen. Thoughts start to spin in her mind. They come back. They have their first daughter born. Three years later, they have another daughter born. Second daughter has Down syndrome. At that point, Lisa and Micah Gunger make a decision. They cannot worship a God who would allow their baby to be born like that. They turn their back on God, recant everything, and turn to atheism. You think this isn't relevant? We need to know God's hand in this. Because if you don't know God's hand in this, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when life doesn't go the way you thought it would go? What are you going to do when your kids are falling apart and there's nothing you can do? God knows. God has purpose in it. And that's the point of this being in John. He does not want us to give up on God. Don't give up on the goodness of God. There is grace for you. And not every situation turns out like this one does with a miraculous healing, but there's a promise of grace. And there's a promise of strength here. So in our circumstances, we need to look not only for cause, but for purpose. Secondly, we need the work of Jesus to truly see. Read with me in John chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 4 and read through verse 34. Jesus says, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. There's the miracle. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It's he. And others said, No, but he's like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? Remember, this man had been blind from birth. Okay, This wasn't something that came on later in life. He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. 
And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. And they brought the man to the Pharisees. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and that he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, Is this your son, whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? The parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He's of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if everyone, anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Interesting. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on verses 4 and 5, but I do want to give you a couple of references that I looked up that were just helpful in understanding what Jesus says there. So if you want to write these down, write down John 4, 34, John 11, 9, and John 12, 35. And if you read those all together, I think it'll shed a little light. But we're going to jump right into verse 6 where this story picks up. And the section heading I have here is that we need the work of Jesus to truly see. And there are layers of meaning here, and I want to I look at all of those. So in our context, we have this man who is born blind. He begs for a living. He's unable to do anything else for himself. He's been blind since birth. And we're going to see Jesus illustrate for us that we need his work, not ours, to truly see. Verse 6 says that he spit on the ground and made mud and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. This was the means that Jesus used to perform this miracle. And verse 14 tells us why this detail is so important to understand. Look at 9 verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day 
when Jesus made mud and opened the man's eyes. It was Sabbath day when he made the mud. This, this is no accident. You remember what we said when we opened, that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He didn't start to make the mud and then go, oh, it's the Sabbath. I'm not supposed to do that. I have to honor the Sabbath, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait till tomorrow. Why didn't he do that? That's a good question. Why didn't he just wait? Why does it seem like Jesus is intentionally pushing the issue? Starting back a few chapters earlier, you remember the inflammatory things that he's saying to these religious leaders and the people who are talking to him? Really inflammatory things. Why? We're going to find out as we keep reading here. In verse 6, when it says that Jesus made mud, I thought this was an interesting detail. It's the same wording used to, if someone were to say, I, I needed dough like to make bread. It was work. Jesus worked on the Sabbath. And this is what got the Pharisees so upset, that he was working on the Sabbath. We see a similar situation, if you remember, in Matthew 12. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field. They're hungry. They start to snap the heads of grain off and eat them. Remember this in Matthew chapter 12? And there the Pharisees accuse them again of breaking the law by working on the Sabbath. And how does Jesus respond there? Similar situation. He tells them that the Son of Man, him, is Lord of the Sabbath, and he proves it by healing a man with a withered hand. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 12. Similar account. And there in Matthew and here in John 9, I think that Jesus is saying loud and clear, I am sovereign over the Sabbath. I am sovereign over your religious system. What would it have said for the Lord of all the universe to say, oh, I better not do this because you think it's the wrong thing to do. At that point, he's not the sovereign of the universe. Christ is absolutely in control. He is absolutely sovereign over these details. And he does this with clear intentionality to prove a point. He is who he says he is. He does not answer to anybody else. And so he demonstrates his authority by healing this man, even though he knows it's a Sabbath, even though he knows that making the mud is going to be looked at as work, and that's technically breaking the law on the Sabbath, he does it anyways. Story picks up in verse 8. When the man comes back seeing, remember Jesus says, go to the pool, wash this mud off your eyes. He comes back seeing. So pick it up in verse 8. The neighbors and those who were around him that knew him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? They want to know what happened. They don't really believe that this is the guy who was blind before. And so they say, how did this happen? And he tells them in verse 11, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. So no one believes that this is really the right guy. And they keep asking him and they keep questioning him. And finally they take him to the religious leaders thinking that they'll be able to get to the bottom of it. Right? Remember when you were a kid and if your friends didn't believe you, you went to someone who had more authority and maybe they would believe them. And this is what's happening. They're just going right up on the chain of authority here. But even the Pharisees are confused and divided over what happened. Look at verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. So they're hung up on what's going on as far as the rules, the law, the religious system. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? In other words, they're saying, he's obviously a sinner because he broke the law. But the other Pharisees are saying, but 
how could he do this if he's not from God? So something's not fitting together. And even in their group, there was a division. So they asked the man again about the one who opened his eyes. And this time, rather than just saying that he was a man, you remember in verse 11, he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. Now when they ask him, what does he say? Verse 17, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. His opinion about who Jesus is is changing as we move through this story. And that's going to be important when we get to our last point. He starts off as Jesus is a man. He moves to Jesus as a prophet. And we're going to see where he ends up by the end of the account. The Pharisees don't believe the man. So just like I said, they go up the chain of authority and they call his parents in. And everybody knows it's really serious when your mom and dad get called. Right? (laughs) This is no kidding around. They don't believe what happened and they said, well, his parents will be able to tell us because they obviously know this man and they wouldn't have any reason to lie. So they bring the parents in and they ask them the same thing. And the parents, interestingly, and this, is, this reminds me of someone else in John, they fear the Jews. They fear the religious leaders because they had made it known at this point, if you acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, you're out. And being thrown out of the synagogue isn't just like we're closing, it's time to go home for the night. This was a big deal. This is basically what our excommunication would be it, you're out so people are this is not something to be taken lightly so the parents fear the religious leaders and so they say yeah that's our son and and yeah he was born blind but we're we're not going to admit that we know anything about his healing ask him he's of age and it reminds me a little bit of nicodemus remember earlier in john nicodemus was a part of the religious leaders And he came to Jesus at night. Why didn't he come during the day? Aaron talked about this. He was afraid of what everybody else would think of him. But by the end of John, we're going to see Nicodemus has taken a much more public role as it regards Christ. So I don't think we should be too hard on the parents at this point. Sometimes it takes time for people to come around. And so we're going to leave them alone for now, but we're going to come back to the parents at the end of this. So the religious leaders ask them, they say, I don't know. And so they bring the man in again. Okay, if you're following along the narrative, they talk to the parents. The parents say, we don't know what happened. Ask him. So they bring the man in. And this time, he seems to get a little bit irritated with them. Maybe I'm reading too much into the text. But look at verse 27. They ask him again, who opened your eyes and how did he open your eyes? And he says, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again. Do you want to become his disciples? And they get super mad. Because that's like an insult, right? Jesus is the the outcast one. He's not with the main group, the party line. He's an outsider. And by this guy saying, do you want to be his disciple as well? Is really offensive. That's really offensive to these religious leaders, which I think is really kind of hilarious. So now listen to what the man says, starting in verse 30. The man answered, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Where's he getting that? Where's this guy getting this? God listens to people who worship him but doesn't. Go back to Psalm 34, if you would please. Turn back to Psalm chapter 34.
Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the land. This is important because to me it shows that this man is speaking the truth. As he answers the religious leaders, as he goes back and forth, he's not making stuff up out of nothing. So either he had been taught the Bible, he had heard it somewhere, he knew what he was talking about. And I think we can believe his testimony based on that. He's not making things up in his response to these people. So he either knew the scriptures himself, had been taught them by someone else. Let's keep going, 32 to 34. He says, Never since the world began had it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Sounds like what Jesus is going to say in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. So why do the religious leaders get so upset at this point? Think about this. They've been having this dialogue with this guy, and this stretched out over a period of, I'm assuming, at least a few hours. They had to go get his parents. They had to bring them in. They talked to them. They go out. He comes back in. Over this time, there's been a lot said. Why does this make them so mad that they cast him out of the synagogue? Think with me about what he's just told them. Verse 11, he told them that it was Jesus that opened his eyes. Okay, so we know that's who we're dealing with. He says that if Jesus was not from God, he could not have done this. Verse 33. The religious leaders say that they're also from God. Remember in verse 28, we're disciples of Moses. They were the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of the day. Yet the Pharisees don't know or recognize Jesus as who he is. So here's what's happening. Do you see it? Both Jesus and the Pharisees are said to be from God. Yet they don't know one another. What's the implication? One of them is false. And if everybody around looks at the tangible evidence of a miracle and says, this man must be from God, and yet the religious leaders say, we don't know who he is, what does that mean? Well, if he's from God, they must not be from God. So again, there's some really abrasive things being said here. That's what ticks them off so bad that they throw him out of the synagogue. Jesus, in healing this man, we're going back to the beginning of the story, is illustrating for us that only he, only he has the power to open the eyes of a person's heart. And as we see the way that these Pharisees and religious leaders respond to this, we see their hearts getting harder and harder and harder. Which brings us to the last point, number three. Seeing will produce worship. Seeing will produce worship. And blindness will produce hardness of heart. Throughout this account, as long as it is, these 41 verses, we've seen something remarkable. And I'm talking about the journey that this blind man has taken in his own thinking. It takes him from thinking that Jesus is just a man to thinking that he's a prophet. And now, at the end of the narrative, we see him worshiping Jesus as Lord. Read with me verse 35 to the end. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? 
He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Ironic use of language. And it is he who is speaking to you now. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The blind man believed and worshipped Jesus. Seeing Jesus for who he is produces worship. The problem is, we need to remember point number two, we need the work of Jesus to truly see. So when we talk about seeing with new eyes, when we talk about seeing with the right eyes, we should always include in that conversation the work of Christ is the only way to have our eyes opened. He demonstrates that in this account by healing the man who was physically blind so that we would understand the spiritual reality. We need the work of Christ to open our eyes. And the seeing produces worship. I love this. In 36, he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. (laughs) How could he see him? He was blind. But Jesus opened his eyes. That's the only way that he could have responded like that. It's the work of Christ. And that's all. But the other side to this is that blindness produces hardness of heart. The Pharisees and the crowd didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. Even after seeing what he did, after hearing his teaching, they didn't believe. They did not see with the eyes of their heart. And their blindness led to a hardness in their heart toward Christ. So what does Jesus mean at the end of the chapter in verse 41 where he says, Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What's he talking about? I think we can stay in the Gospel of John and answer that question, but turn a couple pages over to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 22 and 24. John 15, verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Here's what I think is going on in John 15 and here in John 9. Jesus is removing the grounds, the potential grounds, for any person, in this case it was the Jewish leaders, to say, if we had only known that Jesus was the Messiah, we we would have believed. Right? Jesus gave ample proof that he was who he said he was. Miracles, signs, teaching, prophecy fulfillment. All of those things he gave as proofs while he was here on earth. They would tell you that they saw, right? And in fact, this is, this is the kind of incredulous question that they asked Jesus at the end of this chapter. Are we also blind? Because they claimed to see. They were the leaders. And Jesus says, 
because you say that we see, you see, your guilt remains. He's removing any ground for them to say, we didn't know. They knew. They knew what was going on and their hearts were hardened. You know what the scary part is? You and I are equally as guilty of that. Most of us are going through the book of Romans for our small group study. And chapter 1 of Romans lays out a pretty stark picture that everyone, whether you have the law, whether you have revelation in nature, everybody is accountable to God to know that there is a God. None of us are without excuse. None of us. And so Romans 1 says that there is abundant evidence in the world to show us that there is an all-powerful creator, a God who made heavens and earth, and yet we substitute His glory for our own made-up fairy tale. Jesus said here, you know, you're not blind. You see who I am and what I have done, and therefore your guilt remains. So the question we need to ask we come to the end of the narrative, is who are we in the story? Who are you in the story? Are you the Pharisee? Blind? Hard? You know what's going on, but you refuse to believe it? Maybe you're more like the parents of the man. Thinking mostly of younger people here. Maybe you're embarrassed. You're ashamed to know, to have other people know that you follow Christ. Don't want to speak up about it. Or maybe you're like the blind man, poor, helpless. You've tasted the grace that Christ has extended to you. And as a response to that grace, you've said, Lord, I believe. And you've worshiped Jesus. Those are the three options for us here. But I want you to know that if you are in any position other than the blind beggar this morning, if you identify with the parents being afraid to truly and openly identify with Christ, if you identify with the religious leaders as saying, I know it in my head, but there's no way it can be true, I don't believe it, and you reject that truth, here's the good news for you. There is hope in Christ. There is hope in Christ. And I'm going to close by reading two verses that Paul wrote for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this will explain to you how the eyes of your heart can be opened to see the glory of Christ. Listen along. I'm going to read this and then we'll close in prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is a state that every one of us is in or was in before Christ. Our eyes are blind. We don't see the glory of Christ. When we read the scriptures, it's dead. It's just a book. What needs to happen? Jesus isn't here to smear mud on our eyes, but his word is here, and that's better. Listen to what it says. For God said, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. That is how eyes are opened. Not by any work that we have done, Paul says in Titus, not by any works that we have done in righteousness, but according to the mercy of God we're saved. And he says here in 2 Corinthians that God who said, let there be light and the universe was lit, 
that same creative power can shine in your heart, can open your eyes so that you see Christ as beautiful and compelling and attractive and necessary. You cannot open your own eyes. They are shut from your sin and your hardness. Christ alone has the work to open your eyes and you can take advantage of that right now. You don't have to wait. That's the good news of the gospel. There's some urgency here for you to respond to this. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would do this as we close. Father, we thank you that your word is like a fire, that it's like a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces. And Lord, corporately, we repent of the hardness of our heart at times. That as we go through our life and our circumstances, so often we are cold and indifferent and lazy. God, we need the light of your gospel to shine in our heart and open our eyes. We don't want this just to be a book that we read. We don't want this just to be an exercise we do on Sunday. I pray that as we leave from here, that none of us would be the same that an encounter with you would be a real and relevant thing for us. And this only happens by you shining your light in our heart. So we pray, Christ, that you would do the work. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see you as compelling and beautiful. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.